a selfish and passive husband and father, a stubborn and worldly wife and mother, uh, devious and dishonorable daughters, disrespectful and rebellious sons-in-law, a perverse city putting their wickedness and depravity on full display as they make a mockery of the created order and the institution of marriage. Welcome to Genesis 19. It's one of the most obscene, obscene chapters in all of Scripture. Actually, it's so disturbing that many attempt to change it or just ignore it altogether. But, but Sodom is used 24 times throughout the rest of Scripture to do two things. It's used to describe and to compare uh, the sin of other cities and nations and the judgment that they would undergo if they um, continue in their sin and devolve into, into that sin and, and, and not repent. And it's also used to describe and compare the final judgment when Christ returns. In the words of Calvin, commenting on our New Testament reading from 2 Peter, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah was so memorable an example of divine vengeance that when the Scripture speaks of the universal destruction of the ungodly, it alludes commonly to this as the type. Hence, Peter says that these cities were made an example. So as disgusting as this... This chapter is, it has a purpose. It serves as a warning. And that warning is as much for us today as it was for those who were living in the times of the Old and New Testaments. But fortunately, fortunately, the chapter not only reveals the immorality of Sodom and the influence of sin to which God's people are not immune, as we'll hear. It also reveals the indelible mercy of God, as well as the intercession of Abraham. So while we're going to begin and have begun on a very heavy note, we're going to end with hope, as we always do. So hang in there. We'll get there. We've just got some things to do before we do so. That, by the way, is the outline, the immorality of Sodom, the influence of sin, the indelible mercy of God, and the intercession of Abraham. Uh, children, you're going to find your words. <laughs> Wendy pointed out, man, even the words this week. Yes, I know. But the words are there in their normal place as well. Let's pray before we continue, all right? Father, give us ears to hear and prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May it not return void. May your people be challenged and convicted, and may they also be refreshed and comforted. I ask that you'd fill me with your spirit 
that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you and your people. I ask that you would attend to me as I do this work you've called me to do. And I ask that you would use me as you see fit. And I pray these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, in verse 22 of chapter 18, you'll remember from last week, Moses said that the men or the angels uh, who had been with the Lord and Abraham had uh, left and went towards Sodom. And they did so to bear witness to what was going on in Sodom. In other words, they were going to see if what was being said about Sodom was actually true and to what extent. Of course, they already knew this, but they were going. And in verse 1 of chapter 19, Moses says that they arrive around evening and they found Lot sitting in the gate. And that seems to be something that's a little trivial, but it is a, a very significant detail. In his second epistle that we just read earlier, uh, Peter calls Lot a righteous man. But Lot had established a great deal of status since being in Sodom. He was a man of prominence, maybe even a leader. That means he had digressed from living in a tent outside of the city to moving inside of the city and establishing permanent residence in a house and then had become influential within the city and a leader of the city among the other residents of the city. And I think it's safe to say that he loved the city and it was even for the city. And so much so that despite the fact that Peter also said that Lot was surrounded and tormented by the wickedness wickedness of those in the city, he still called them brothers in verse 7. That means he's experiencing a great deal of conflict, internal conflict. He knew what was right, and in Paul's words from Ephesians 5, he was choosing not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. However, he was failing to expose them. Lot was also a man who was concerned with social mores. And like his uncle, he, when he saw these men coming, he uh, believed they were travelers that were passing through, and he exercised hospitality and invited them in. He wanted them to spend the night so that they could clean up and get a little food and have a good night's sleep before they carried on, on their journey the next morning. But, but it wasn't simply a desire to be hospitable that caused him to invite them in. He knew the depravity of the city. He was also motivated by fear. He knew that the hospitality that the rest of the city wanted to offer was not the same kind of hospitality that he was going to offer them. So when the men politely refused his offer and, said, and suggested they, they, they go sleep in, 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 the, in the courtyard to not be a burden to him or his family, Lot pressed them. The word says that Lot pressed them strongly. In other words, he insisted. He, he was strongly urged, urging them not to do so. One commentator said that he strong-armed them. Another one said that he manhandled them. So that you can, you can picture this, you know, putting one in an arm bar and putting a headlock in the other until they conceded to come and stay with him. 
But even that, even though they changed their mind and they do stay with him, even, even that didn't put Lot at ease. And we know that based upon the fact that he, like Abraham, made, that made them a feast, but Abraham made them bread that, that needed to take time to prove and rise. But notice Lot makes unleavened bread, which hints toward a couple of things. One, the meal needed to be hasty. And two, it was going to be a brief stay. Well, after supper, before they could make their way to bed, Lot's fear was realized. The men of the city surround the house. And it wasn't just one or two, it wasn't just three or four, it wasn't even five or six. Moses says that it was all of the men, all of them, young, old. He said all of the people to the last man were surrounding the city. We say, well, why is that important? Well, remember how chapter 18 concluded? The Lord told Abraham that for the sake of just 10 righteous people, he would not destroy the city. So what Moses is doing is letting us know what those two men or what the angels found when they arrived at Sodom. And what they found was that other than Lot, who, by the way, whose righteousness would be highly questionable if it weren't for the inspired words of Peter. Let's get that straight. But besides righteous Lot, there, was, there weren't ten. There wasn't even one. And how do we know that? It's because of what they wanted to do. Look at verse 5. It says, And they called to Lot, We're the men who came to you tonight. Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now some would have us to believe, they attempt to get us to believe that the only sins of Sodom were relational and interpersonal and uh, social in nature. And they go to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. It says this, Behold, this was the guilt of our sisters, or your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous, e- uh, pros- um, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. But verse 50 of Ezekiel 16 says this, They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So that means there were also sins that they were committing that the Lord said were blatantly defiant. Actually, it means that they were flaunting certain sins without remorse that were actually morally disgusting and abhorrent. What were those sins? Well, as we've seen earlier in our study of Genesis, the the verb yada or to know is a euphemism for sex. So their sins weren't simply relational, interpersonal, and social. They were sexual. And they weren't just sexual, they were homosexual in nature. The bottom line is that these men were seeking to, to be involved sexually with other men. And we don't have to make an, a, a value judgment. We don't have to make a value judgment of their desire and behavior because Lot does it for us. He begged the men to stop stop acting so wickedly. 
Now, many believe that they were seeking to not only act sexually, but in sexually violent and abusive ways. But as Kevin DeYoung pointed out, based on the lack of similar language that we're going to see later in Genesis 34, language of seizing and humiliating to describe what Dinah experienced at the hands of Shechem, and considering what Jude specifically told us their sin was when he said this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Because of all that, it doesn't seem as though the euphemism of to know carries with it a connotation of sexual violence or abuse. So it's very likely... It's very likely that the men of Sodom simply wanted the visitors to, in the words of DeYoung, come out and have a good time. They simply wanted to have a party, and, and they wanted their unnatural desires satisfied. I think a case can, can be made that the sexual violence and the abuse may have been a part of what was desired, but only after Lot made them angry. In verse 7, or I'm sorry, in verse 9, we're told that what made them, made them angry was not just because he had refused the offer, but because he had made a moral judgment against them. Those whom he called brothers, those with whom he had developed influence, not only turned on him, but threatened him once he finally drew the line and exposed them for what they were doing. And what they were doing, he said, was wicked. They had befriended him as long as he hadn't made any type of moral judgments, but once he did, they reacted violently. In other words, it wasn't enough that he had exercised tolerance and, and had respected them Despite the disagreement that he had with them, they wanted him to affirm their behavior as normal and good, which he couldn't do. And that should sound familiar. So let's pause here for a minute just because I, I don't know that anything could be more relevant for us today than this. And anyone who says that the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, is irrelevant today, obviously hasn't read it. While we're not at the point, brothers and sisters, we are not at the point where every man, young and old, and all the people to the last man are pursuing unnatural desires and indulging in homosexual and other types of sexually deviant behavior like they were in Sodom. We aren't. However, according to the most recent Gallup poll, the number of those who identify themselves somewhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum has doubled in the last 10 years. An alarming 20% of 18 to 25-year-olds today identify somewhere on the spectrum. One out of five. It's a growing issue. 
The LGBTQ community is so well organized and, and their strategy is so successful that I don't believe it can be called a marginal commun marginalized community anymore. In the words of Carl Truman, if you are truly marginalized, you tend not to have months celebrating your existence. And unfortunately, one of the areas that they have been so successful is in leading the church to a place of accommodation and compromise. Whether that be through emotional pleas, whether that be through the redefining of terms, or poorly exegeted alternative interpretations of biblical passages like the one we're in tonight and like Leviticus 18 and Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 and Jude 7. Or through labeling those who disagree as intolerant and judgmental and unloving and bigoted and homophobic, the result has been the same. Slowly, slowly but surely, one person, one person at a time, one church at a time, and one denomination at a time have, have allowed themselves to be shaped by the world's standards, which are completely contrary to the word's standards and have made accommodations and compromises in regard to what is right and what is wrong in the areas of gender and sexual sin and marriage. And those accommodations and compromises have led to accommodations and compromises in the area of God's character and sin and justification and sanctification and eternal judgment, among others. And I get it. I get it. We are being inundated with an ungodly agenda. And the pressure for us to conform is immense. Particularly for those who have family members and friends and co-workers whom they love and care for and have chosen this lifestyle. It's even harder when those friends and loved ones and co-workers aren't militantly waving their flags and they aren't manipulating unilateral compliance with their demands for approval and affirmation. They just want to be left alone to live their lives. Some of you are experiencing that pressure. And I want you to know I'm, I pray for you and I pray for your family because I know it's not easy. But brothers and sisters, we're in the midst of an all-out assault. We're becoming less and less, as I wrote to you earlier this week, we are becoming less and less able to shelter our children and ourselves from the culture's downward spiral into this, into this dark abyss of homosexual sin. Guarding their hearts, guarding our hearts, guarding their minds, guarding our minds is becoming more and more difficult, but we must stand firm.
We must stand firm. We must remain committed to the truth of the Word of God. It is the only infallible rule for our faith and practice. And when we draw lines and when we make moral judgments, people are going to react and they're going to push back and we have to be ready for that pushing back. We need to be ready for those and prepared for those reactions. And Sodom tells us, because Sodom tells us that this is a matter of life and death. Well, for a brief moment, Lot exercises a bit of what we might consider heroism. But it's really brief. He stepped outside. He closed the door behind him. He put himself between his guests and his family and those of the city. But it was short-lived because his plan was horrific. Like his uncle, he made a decision he clearly had not thought through. Remember Abraham, Abraham or Abram taking Sarai and turning her over to Pharaoh? The nephew hadn't learned. And he offers his daughters. And then not just offers them, offers them and says, do with them as you please. Why in the world would he do that? That's the, that's the natural question. Why would he do that? Anything would have been better than what he chose to do. Sure, according to custom, he had the responsibility. He had taken them in, so he needs to protect them. They're now his responsibility because they're in his home. Even in Calvin's words, he says it was a rare virtue that he put the safety and honor of the guests whom he had undertaken to protect above the safety of his own life. The problem was he didn't put his own life on the line. Again, in the words of Calvin, Lot did not hesitate to make prostitutes of his own daughters in his desire to quell their indomitable fury of the people. But he should have endured a thousand deaths rather than have restored to, uh, resorted to such a measure. So why didn't he? Why didn't he do it? And the only answer that makes sense is that he had become so influenced by the sin of the city. In the words of Ligon Duncan, it simply shows us the warped moral thinking that had crept into Lot's mind. And we see this, we see this influence of sin continue later on as, as well as he's leaving the city. Right? Despite the impending judgment and destruction, he hesitates, he lingers. And then not only that, he has the audacity to beg the men, please, don't, don't make me go to the mountains. Let's, let me stay in Zoar. It's closer. It's smaller. So as debased as Sodom was, Lot was entranced by it. Sin had so influenced his heart. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave he may not have been completely of the world, but he had grown way too comfortable in the world. He's this, again, he's experiencing this deep internal conflict. And what we see, we see sin's influence of Lot even later when he's in the cave. 
and he's succumbed by the plot of his daughters, and he becomes blindly drunk. And that should sound familiar. The same truth that we learned and saw with Noah is repeated here. Right? We said back then that Noah brought sin into the new world. And here we learn that you can take the man out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the man. But Lot wasn't the only one. We can't just pick on Lot. The rest of his family had been influenced by sin as well. We see this influence of sin in the lives of his sons-in-law. When, when warned of the impending judgment, they just laugh it off. They mock him. They mock, they mock judgment. And, and we, shouldn't be shocked, we, we shouldn't be shocked at, at their reactions because they're sodomites. What does that mean? Well, that means that they were outside Lot's house. They were helping surround their future father-in-law's house. They were men of the city. But it gets worse, if it could get worse. It does get worse. Because I have a feeling his daughters, Lot's daughters, knew of the bisexual lifestyles of their husbands-to-be and turned a blind eye. And I say that due to the fact that they had been influenced by the sin of the city as well. How do we know that? We see it at the end of the chapter. They, they plan on, on consecutive nights, they purposely get their father drunk so that he'll be intimate with them and they end up pregnant. They may have been sexually pure prior to those nights, but they had been, they had been defiled in their thinking over time as they had been immer immersed in the city in which they lived. And of course, the most prominent example of the, is of the influence that sin had over Lot's wife. As the family was fleeing Sodom, she didn't just hesitate. She stopped going with the caravan to Zoar. And she stops and she turns around. She wants... She, she can't make a clean break from the city she loves. She had her grip on temporal things, on earthly things. And as she pauses and waits and looks back, she pays the price. And you probably remember from our study of Luke 17, verses 28 to 33, which was, of course, our passage of our preparation of worship tonight, Jesus specifically uses her as a warning in the context of future judgment. Remember Lot's wife. Brothers and sisters, being a Christian, being a part of the covenant community does not make us immune to the influence of sin in the world and Satan. It just doesn't. We remain vulnerable to the sins of Sodom. Christians make poor choices every day. Christians make horrific choices every day. So we need to ask ourselves a few questions. We need to ask ourselves of what we need to 
repent. What warnings do we need to hear and to heed and, and to pay attention to and not ignore this evening? Who do we identify with in the story? Do we identify with Lot? Are we righteous in the sight of God due to our faith, yet internally we're in conflict because we've made accommodations and compromises with the world? And husbands and fathers in the room, what examples are we setting for our families? Are we protecting our families? Or are we offering them up to be preyed upon by the world? Do we identify with Lot's wife? Are we enamored and attached to the things of the world, the temporal things, and and do we long to live in this world rather than in the world to come? Do we identify with Lot's daughters? Do we resort to our own worldly plans and strategies that have been affected by sin and influenced by sin and, and the world in which we live? Do we identify with Lot's future sons-in-law? Are we living duplicitous lives? Are we dismissing the impending judgment for sin? What is influencing us the most? Is it the world? Is it the Word of God? I pray it's the Word of God. Because again, it alone contains what we need to believe and shows us how we are to live and obey. Now let's all just take a deep breath. I need to take a deep breath. Seriously, I needed to take a deep breath. Fortunately for us, fortunately for us, This chapter not only reveals the immorality of Sodom and the influence of sin to which we are not immune, it also reveals the indelible mercy of God. And we see that in four ways in the passage. First, we see it in verse 10. We see it in verse 10 when the men of the city are pressing up against Lot. And the men or the visitors inside, the angels open the door and pull him in and shut the door. It should remind us of exactly what happened to Noah. Noah and his family enter the ark and the door shuts behind them in safety. Second, we see it when the men of the city are struck with blindness. This, of course, was to protect those within the house. But it was also an opportunity for the men of the city It was an opportunity for the men of the city to to turn around and go home and to consider their folly and repent. But unlike Paul on the road to Damascus who responded to his blindness with repentance and faith, they simply grope all the more for the door. They couldn't stop seeking to satisfy their unnatural desires because of their seared consciences. 
Third, we see it when the angels tell Lot to warn his family of the judgment that's coming. Go, go. Do you have sisters? Do you have, do you have anybody in the city? Go tell them. The city is about to be engulfed in fire and sulfur. Like Noah's family, Lot's family was offered safety based on his faith. And fourth, we see it when Lot lingers and the visitors seize him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and they set them outside of the city. It's a perfect example of what we read in John 6 where we read that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it's perfect because that verse can also be tra translated, no one comes to me unless the Father, sent, the, the Father who sent me drags him. And we who believe in irresistible grace, we, we defend the translation unless someone draws him, and rightfully so, because it, it speaks of being drawn by the inward power of the Holy Spirit. There's nobody in heaven that doesn't want to be there. There's no one in heaven that had, to be, that had to be dragged to heaven under duress. At the same time, we understand that our hearts, we understand our hearts and we understand the allure of sin. And we understand that, that were it not for God grabbing us and taking our hand and placing it into His and Him gripping so tightly that He wouldn't let go and can't let go and that, and that nothing would snatch us out of it, that we would be lost. Lot and his family had nothing to do to merit the protection of the mob, had, had done nothing to merit the, the warning of judgment and the removal from the city. It was all about God's indelible mercy. He withheld what they deserved. And beloved, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with rain of sulfur and fire was the action of a holy, righteous, and just God who never acts arbitrarily, ever. Every sin deserves eternal punishment because every sin, as you've heard us say many times, is cosmic treason against a holy and eternal God. And Sodom, as we've already heard, is an example of the judgment to come for that treason. Make no mistake, sin will be punished fully and finally in the fullness of time when Christ, who came to save the first time, when he comes again to judge both the living and the dead, comes to judge both the living and the dead a second time. But again, here's the good news. The good news is that God is a God of indelible mercy. And he will faithfully forgive any and every sin of those who repent and turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without question. This is true no matter how small or great the sin might be. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this specifically. That includes those struggling with same-sex temptation. 
That includes those struggling with gender confusion, those who are actively pursuing lifestyles that are contrary to, to who they've been created to be as men and women in the image of God. That includes those who are pursuing relationships contrary to God's design. If, if you're struggling with any of these sins, I urge you tonight to confess those things. Confess those sins to Him. Turn away from your sexual sins and seek to walk in the newness of life that only Christ can provide. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. If you come to Him with a broken and contrite heart and confess and turn away from your sin, God promises to forgive and cleanse you from all of your sin and unrighteousness. Period. And if you're experiencing same-sex temptation and continue to experience the shame and the guilt for, for ongoing, those ongoing desires, please hear this. God Himself has said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Any unholy desire, including same-sex temptation, is covered by the blood of Christ. And if you continue to struggle in this area, I implore you again to trust in God's forgiveness his forgiving mercies, and in His grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit, ask God for help. Ask Him for help as you seek to mortify those desires and again to live in the newness of life that is yours in Christ. Everyone, everyone hear this. Again, regardless of your sin, Whatever it might be, one of those or another, hear the good news of the gospel that's being offered tonight. Whatever your sin, no matter what your sin, Christ's hand is mighty. His hand and His arm is outstretched, and I encourage you tonight to take it. Take His hand. He will grab hold of you. And He will lead you out of the darkness of sin and judgment and into the light of forgiveness and salvation. He will not fail you. Well, let's quickly look at the last point. In verse 27, Moses said, Abraham went out where he stood before the Lord back in chapter 18. And he probably stood there in mournful silence. Stood in mournful silence looking at the smoke rising from the valley. And then in verse 29 it says that God remembered Abraham. And we ask ourselves, what, what does that mean? Well, at the end of chapter 18, Abraham had interceded on behalf of Lot. 
And it was Abraham's intercession that God used as an effectual means of Lot's deliverance. It was, it was Abraham's prayers through which God worked to deliver Lot to salvation through judgment. So Abraham was able to stand again silently mournful and yet I think Abraham could stand with a clear conscience having done what he had done. And brothers and sisters, we find ourselves providentially in this passage, in this particular passage at the end of Pride Month. And that should not be lost on us. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells his disciples that those who reject the gospel will experience a worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we believe that, if we believe that, the question we should be asking ourselves is not whether or not we should shop at Target or whether or not we should drink Bud Light. The question that we should be asking ourselves is are we praying for those who are struggling with sexual sin? Are we praying for those who are immersed within the LGBTQ community? Are we interceding for their salvation? If we are, praise the Lord. If we aren't, we should be. We have the responsibility, because that's not all, we also have the responsibility to not purposefully or habitually avoid believers who are struggling with sexual sin. We should, with a spirit of compassion, in Paul's words from Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We should also not purposefully or habitually avoid non-believers who have chosen this type of lifestyle of sexual sin. Again, with a spirit of compassion, we should speak the truth of love, speak the truth in love of or about sexual sin and about repentance and about faith in Christ. We should be sharing our own experiences of deliverance from our sin. And we should be acting kindly toward them and seeking to win our neighbor to Christ. But in both cases, believer or non-believer, we should do so prudently, wisely, and with godly discretion. And this is particularly true of parents who first and foremost have the responsibility of guarding their hearts and minds of their children. Exercise wisdom and care as you do this. And may that be so for all of us, not just in June, but every month of the year.
Let's pray together. Well, Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.